Welcome. You're listening to the Sanctuary Podcast with Tully and Chivijan. Be sure to follow us on our social media channels. You can find the Sanctuary Jupiter on all major social media platforms. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast. I want to focus your attention this morning on James, the book of James. The New Testament book of James comes right after Hebrews. That may mean nothing to you guys, but it's in the New Testament toward the back. Uh, We're going to be looking at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. And I went to bed uh, Friday night having a pretty good idea of what I was going to preach this morning. And then about midnight, I got a text from Zyman. Uh, saying, can you please explain James chapter 2, verses 14 through 20 to me? Uh, Because I'm having a hard time understanding it. And so I read it, and then uh, I responded briefly to his text, and I slept on it, and I woke up the next morning, yesterday morning, and I said, I'm calling an audible here. I'm going to preach from these verses because they have been misunderstood for a long, long time. They can be very confusing. So I'm going to read James chapter chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. James writes, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, And you say, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing? What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless. So thank you, Zyman, for the inspiration. Greatly appreciate it. Um, And after receiving his text and thinking about it, um, I realized that these verses, as I said a minute ago, have been taught misleadingly for a long time. I mean, it sure sounds on the surface of things, like James is saying, if you want to make sure you're in good with God, you better do good. You better be good. I mean, that's the takeaway upon first reading. Martin Luther, my historical hero, called the book of James an epistle of straw. He questioned whether or not it should even be in the Bible. Um, Now, he came around later in life, um, but the reason he didn't like it and the reason he called it an epistle of straw is because he thought it gave too much fuel to religious people who used it to convince others that they must be good deed doers if they want to be right with God. That was what he was battling in his day. So many people, religious people who were saying that you have to be good in order for God to accept you. You have to be good in order for God to love you. And when Martin Luther read Romans, he realized that's not at all the way it works with God. And so he was fighting an entire establishment in his day. 
And he didn't like the book of James because the religious establishment always went back to verses like this to try to prove that you have to be good for God. Uh, And so he called it an epistle of straw because it served as easy fuel for their fire. Uh, Now, I understand that. Uh, I've struggled myself at times with the book of James. I understand that because religious people are still using these verses to scare people into being good. Still. However they define goodness. You talk to 10 different people, you may get 10 different answers. Um, I saw a church sign the other day that said, God's love is unconditional as long as you are obeying him. Okay. Now, there were two things about that sign that bothered me. First of all, the word unconditional was misspelled. Okay. There was, that actually bothered me more. Um, But it just didn't make sense. God's love is unconditional as long as you keep this particular condition. It cancels out. Um, One preacher said, and I read this this week, how do you measure real faith? The ongoing decreasing of sin in your life. As you grow in faith, you will sin less. If you're not sinning less, you don't have real faith. Now, this was said by a very prominent preacher who's been saying these kinds of things for decades. I read something else this week, social media personality, who wrote this. God isn't looking for perfection. He's looking for obedience. Now, first of all, before I go on, God is absolutely looking for perfection, okay? He demands perfection. He requires perfection, okay? So uh, this may sound kind of nice on the surface, but in reality, uh, it's not true. God isn't looking for perfection. He's looking for obedience. God isn't looking for perfection. He's looking for full surrender. Sounds kind of like perfection to me. Um, God isn't looking for perfection. He's looking for those, this is my favorite one, who have a perfect heart for him. God isn't looking for perfection. He knows you don't always get it right, but he's looking to see how hard you're trying. Okay, now, uh, Week in and week out, I stand up here and I read different examples to you of things that are being said out there that lots of people are hearing or reading. And I do that to show you, there's two reasons I do it. One, to kind of give you an alarm system, to equip you with an alarm system so that when you're out there and you hear this stuff, a little, you know, sort of a warning sign goes off. You're like, well, hold on a second. That that doesn't sound right. So that's one reason. The second reason is to prove to you that this stuff is prevalent everywhere. Everywhere. I mean, this kind of messaging about who God is and how God relates to us and what God requires from us in order to be in good with him. This kind of stuff is out there all over the place. I see it every day, literally every day. The way these particular verses have been taught by many has done serious damage to people. Serious damage. 
It's caused people to question God's love for them. It's caused people to doubt whether they've been good enough to get to heaven. It causes people to assume that God is primarily interested in us becoming good and doing the right thing and flying straight and keeping the rules and all of that stuff. God becomes someone we have to prove ourselves to rather than a father who loves us and delights in us no matter what. Now, there are lots of problems with understanding these verses that way. First of all, uh, and I, I wrote to somebody last week who was asking about another set of verses that were similar to these, and I said, those are hard verses to understand. Make no mistake about it. They are confusing. They're difficult. Um, but it's always a very important principle of interpretation, okay, to interpret things that aren't clear by the things that are clear. So, for instance, there are places in the Bible that seem confusing and they don't seem clear. And whenever you encounter verses or whenever you encounter a passage like that, it's always important to go back to those passages that are very clear. Because the the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And so, if you're going to understand... If you're going to understand the difficult stuff, you have to understand it in light of the not difficult stuff. So, for instance, when the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God, nothing on earth and nothing in heaven, nothing you do or fail to do can ever separate you or disconnect you from the love of God because God's love for you is not dependent on what you do, but dependent on what he's done for you. You have to interpret verses like these in James in light of that truth. Okay, Or when Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation, None, not there will be no condemnation if you do it right, if you're good and if you're getting better. That's not what it says. It says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, you have to interpret verses like these in James in light of the clear verses like that in Romans and other places. Um, so there are, there are lots of problems with understanding these verses wrongly. But the most obvious to me is what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. You remember the story. Uh, uh, A rich young man approaches Jesus on the road and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' immediate response is, Why do you call me good? There is no one good but God. Now, how can Jesus say that? Okay, I mean, how in the world can he say that? That doesn't seem right. I mean, I know, I know lots of good people, people who do the right things and work to avoid the wrong things, people who are nice, people who are kind, people who are compassionate and empathetic. So how can Jesus say there's, there's no one good but God? I mean, if we define goodness based on what we do, uh, the things we do, uh, then I would, in this sense, call myself good much of the time. I mean, I I care about other people. I love my family. I spend most of my weeks helping people in need. I think I'm pretty nice and friendly and extremely funny. And those who know me best would probably agree, okay? Um, So what does Jesus mean? There is no one good but God. I mean, this seems to be a problem. Jesus himself says there's no one good but God. 
Paul in Romans says, there is no one good, not even one, in Romans chapter 3. But then James here says, uh, you need to prove your faith by being good, by doing good. Okay, so there, there seems to be an issue here, a problem, a, a contradiction. Um, well, let me do my best to clarify this. When Jesus says no one is good but God, he's not saying the whole human race is filled with mean people who never do anything good and right. That's not what he's saying. That's not his point. He's saying that according to God's requirement to be perfect, there is only one who is good. So when the rich young ruler comes up to him and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? At the end, Jesus says, uh, it's impossible. You can't do enough to inherit eternal life. You can't be good enough in order to get God's love. That's, that's impossible. Um, there is no one good but God. It's impossible for you to do what is required in order for God to love you. It's impossible. Um, he's saying that according to God's requirements, his demand to be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect, there is only one who pulled that off. It's only one who is good. So the goodness that Jesus is talking about is vertical goodness. Okay, how, how good do you have to be to get in with God? And his answer is, it's impossible because you must be perfect. With man, it is impossible, he says, but not with God. Not with God. What establishes our relationship to God vertically is God. God does it. It's God's goodness that solidifies our connection to him, not, not ours. Um, when the Bible uses the word justify or justification, it almost always uses it in reference to how one gets right with God. Almost always. And there are only two options to choose from. Either we justify ourselves, we make ourselves right with God, or God justifies us. Either we make ourselves right with God by what we do, or God makes us right with God by what he did for us. Those are really the only two options. In other words, we are either justified by our goodness, or we are justified by his grace. Those are the only two options. And Jesus makes it clear in that passage where he speaks to the rich young ruler that we are made right with God by God's grace alone. That the God who makes the demand for perfection meets the demand for perfection for us. It's the whole purpose of Jesus coming. So the goodness Jesus is talking about can't be the same thing that James is talking about. Whatever James means here in these verses, he can't be saying that if we want to ensure that we're made right with God forever, we better do good things. He can't be saying that. In light of what Jesus said, in light of what uh, Paul said in Romans and Paul said in Galatians and a lot of other places in the Bible, James can't be saying that. This, these verses cannot be used by religionists to scare you into being good if you're ever going to be loved by God and accepted by God. Um, so if that's not what James means, then what does he mean? Well, if Jesus was talking about vertical goodness, 
James is talking about horizontal goodness, okay? The kind of goodness that flows through us to other people. Things like empathy and kindness and compassion and forgiveness and understanding. He even gives an example here. He says, if, if you say you're this godly, devout person and you're not helping people in need, then what good is your faith? I mean, it's, it's dead. It's, it's, it's words only. Uh, so the kind of goodness he's talking about are things like empathy and compassion and kindness and forgiveness and love. And that kind of goodness only happens as we soak in the grace of God. As we soak in the hot tub of what God has done for us, things like empathy, compassion, forgiveness, patience with other people, those things just start to organically develop. They just start to happen spontaneously. I've said this before, but growth is kind of like learning how to drive a car. The need for constant instruction slowly gives way to instinct over time. Where you're not really even thinking about it. You wake up one day and you go, I don't hold grudges as easily as I used to. And you haven't even been trying. It's not like you've been reading books on forgiveness or listening to sermons on forgiveness. Uh, You're just a more forgiving person now. How did that happen when you haven't even really been working towards it? Well, if you just soak in the grace and love and forgiveness of God long enough, you just start becoming this way. Over time, God ensures that you start becoming this way over time. So what James is saying is that if you're hard-hearted and self-righteous and unforgiving and graceless and loveless and merciless toward others, then your, your faith is dead, It doesn't matter how much you know or how many Bible studies you go to or how long you pray. If you're ungracious or you think you're better because of those things, your faith is useless, is what he's saying. Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, puts it this way very clearly. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others... I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, my doctrine was right. And if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. That's what James is saying. He's showing us the priority of faith and what happens to us and in us and through us when real faith is present. We soften. We become a bit kinder. We don't nail it. We don't get this perfectly. We will still experience a lot of moments of impatience and unkindness and mercilessness and all that stuff. Okay. We, we will experience that. But over time, as we soak in this truth, we just, we start becoming different without even trying. Being gracious and forgiving 
and empathetic is born not out of thinking that you're good, but out of knowing that you're no better than anyone else. That's how it happens. Wherever there is a lack of grace, forgiveness, and empathy, there is always a posture of moral superiority. Always. Wherever there is a lack of grace, wherever, wherever there is a lack of forgiveness, wherever there is a lack of empathy, there is always a a posture, subtle as it may be, but there is always a posture of moral superiority. And that is evidence of a non-living faith. A faith in words only. I, uh, I put this up on social media this past week. I was thinking about this. It was inspired by a conversation I had earlier in the week. I wrote this. I am not a better person than I was nine years ago when I bottomed out. But I am more aware of my screwed upness and how much grace I've been given. And I suppose from a certain point of view, that is better. Maybe getting better isn't what they told us it is. Maybe getting better is a deeper awareness of my own faultiness and the amazing grace that's been given to me. Maybe that's, maybe that's a sign of growth, of betterment. Maybe when the Apostle Paul says at the very end of his life as an old man, I'm the worst guy I know. I'm the least of all of Jesus' followers. I'm, I know my weaknesses and my sin and my faultiness and my failures better now than I did when my relationship with God started. That's growth. That's betterment. Um, I, I know that I've mentioned this, but I, I wrote a book. It took me about 18 months. Uh, It'll be out in March. Thank God. I can't wait. It's like giving birth to a child. I know that there are... Stacy goes, calm down. <laughs> it's harder than giving birth to a child, spoken as an expert, okay? Um, but uh, I entitled it Carnage and Grace. And the subtitle is Confessions of an Adulterous Heart. And it's a probing, raw memoir of my life over the last nine years. Uh, and in the epilogue of that book, I, I wrote this. The people closest to me say I'm less and more than I used to be. I'm less what's next and more present. Less Superman and more humane. Less self-assured and more self-aware. Less larger than life and more down to earth. I'm softer than I used to be. They say more understanding, more empathetic. My own failures have forced me to reckon with God's forgiveness in a way that has made me more forgiving without even really trying. As a result, I'm less likely to hold a grudge. I'm far more grateful for the smaller things now. You could say that small things are a big deal to me these days. I take a lot less for granted. People matter more, way more. Projects matter less, way less. I'm more of a friend and less of a networker. I enjoy listening more. 
I love the things that matter most more. Minutes and moments are so much more important to me now. I, ca- I care way more about today and much less about tomorrow. Life is smaller and slower than it used to be, a lot smaller and much slower, and I love it. It's less grand, less busy, less impressive. I have less stuff, a lot less money, less connections. I'm less celebrated, less influential, and less sought after. And yet, I couldn't care less about all that these days. Because life is slower and smaller, I see more. I hear more. I feel more. Things are quieter inside me. I'm less distracted. I'm way more content way more free, and way more comfortable in my own skin. I think this is the good that James is talking about. It's not being a good deed doer, however those good deeds are explained or described. I think it's, I think it's the deep stuff, the stuff that only God can do inside of a person. These changes that I just read about. They didn't happen because I buckled down and I studied and pursued. And I, this, just, this stuff just happened. Failure has a way. Desperation has a way of making you deep, giving you perspective, slowing you down, making you more appreciative, making you care more about people and their own suffering, whatever that may be, self-induced or otherwise. I said on a podcast interview not long ago that the church uh, has done a decent job over the years of uh, being gracious and giving care to people who are suffering because of what someone else has done for them, someone else has done to them. But the church has historically done a really, really bad job of giving grace and care to people who are suffering because of what they've done to themselves or because of what they've done to other people. And yet, grace is available for both victims and perpetrators. And if we're all honest, we're all victims and we're all perpetrators in one way, shape, or form. Um, and so this is the kind of stuff when you crash and burn or you come to the end of yourself, when you run out of aces, you bump up against walls, you come to the end of your own abilities and you come face to face with your own frailty and your own, um, your own problems, your own issues, whatever they are, uh, when you come face to face with that stuff, that has a tendency to make you deeper. God uses that stuff, the bad stuff, to make you into a different kind of person. Um, in other words, I could put it this way, the proof of real faith is not in how pure you are, but rather in how aware you are of your impurity. Because when you're aware of your impurity and you're aware of your own um, tendency towards self-righteousness, you tend to look down on other people less. You tend to help people more. You tend to listen more. You tend to care more. See, accepting the reality of our broken, flawed lives is the beginning of true faith, 
not because faith will remove our flaws, but because it trusts in the God who is always present with us in the tangled mess of our lives. Faith trusts that God is who he says he is. Someone who will never leave you, forsake you. Living faith, in other words, is marked by trust in God's promise to never stop loving you no matter what. That's what living by faith and not by sight is. It's not trusting in your faithfulness. It's trusting in God's faithfulness. Knowing, um, well, that unwavering promise of God to love you no matter what is what makes you softer, more forgiving toward others. Um, knowing you aren't better than anyone else and knowing your own need for grace and forgiveness makes you more gracious. Over time, it just it makes you more forgiving. It gives you a different kind of heart toward people. I love the way Frederick Beekner wrote this. And I mean, this may be the best description of faith that has ever been written outside the Bible. He says this, faith is the word that describes the direction our feet start moving when we discover that we are loved. Just think about, ponder that, meditate on that, think about that. Faith is the word that describes the direction of our, our, that our feet start moving when we discover that we are loved. What do you do when you discover that you are loved no matter what, that there is someone who knows a lot of your crap and they still want to be close to you, it makes you want to move toward that person. It makes you want to get closer to that person. You feel safe around that person. Well, that's who God is. Faith is movement toward God because, because of his love. Um, let me conclude with this. I... Um, I've read this before. In fact, I, I read this maybe six, eight months ago. Uh, but half of you weren't here, so you, this will be new to you anyway. Uh, Brenda will remember this. Where'd Brenda go? Is she teaching the kids? Oh, well, it doesn't matter. I think she's the only one that talked to me about it, and she's not even in the room. Perfect. Um, but I have a, I, I love what I'm about to read to you. It's one of my favorite things that has ever been written, and it wasn't written that long ago. It was written by a friend of mine. And she says this, Catholic theologian James Allison describes faith as relaxing. Relaxing in the love and presence of God in the way we relax in the presence of someone we know is fond of us. When we are in the presence of someone we know who loves us no matter what, we're funnier we're more spontaneous, we're softer, we're less defended, we love better, and we forgive quicker. If I know for sure someone loves me, there's no reason to pretend any longer. That's what faith is. It's relaxing in the presence of him who loves us no matter what. No matter what, he's not keeping score. 
That's been settled. That's done. It is finished. And that relaxation, that um, removed fear of needing to prove ourselves to God and be good enough for God and to make sure we cross our T's and dot our I's for God, when that's removed, now we're free to look out to the people around us and inquire about what they need. We're free to love. We're free to give. We're free to listen. We no longer have to get anything for ourselves. We no longer have to prove anything to anybody else, especially God. So now we can just be free. And when we don't have to think about ourselves anymore and our standing with God and if we're being obedient enough and if we're getting better, if we're good enough, when we don't have to think about that stuff anymore, now I can start paying attention to what you need. Now I can start listening to you. Now I can start loving you without needing you to love me back. Now I can start serving Uh, without thinking that that service somehow garners a gold medal with God. That's what James is talking about. That's the kind of goodness that he's describing. And that's the kind of goodness that begins happening in us organically. You don't have to work toward this stuff. You don't have to achieve this stuff. You, You receive it from God and it flows to you and then through you to other people. So what's the mark of real faith? Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, things like that. Sound familiar? The fruit of the spirit, not your fruit, not fruit you've worked hard for, not fruit I've worked hard for. This is the fruit of the spirit that is just deposited into you and develops over time as you soak in the grace and goodness and love of God for you. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast. If you've enjoyed this message, would you consider giving to the work God is doing through the sanctuary? You can visit our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com slash give for more information on ways to give. That's thesanctuaryjupiter.com slash give. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast.